4680Q. All right, we're back with another episode. I know it's been a little while. Michael's been on the beach. Uh, Bobby, we still don't know where he is. <laughs> All 80s Rock and Talk podcast. Listen, if you don't disappear, you're not creating, you know, that, 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 I, oh my God, what happened to those guys moment. So we're back, right, Michael? <laughs> That's it, buddy. It's all about the mystique with me. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. So today, interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about Aerosmith. I don't know why this came up, but I thought, you know what? Seems like an interesting topic. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you this. You said many times you were kind of in that pop pop scene, pop rock scene. Aerosmith was kind of, you know, a, I don't want to say a heavy rock band in the, in the seventies, but kind of, and a lot of solid Aerosmith fans loved the Aerosmith of the 70s, not so right. much in the 80s. And we're going to talk about that, almost like the Van Halen, you know, like you had the before 5150 and then the after 5150. Uh, yeah. were, were you an Aerosmith fan in the 70s? Like, did you listen to the albums? I mean, their first album came out in 73. Uh, Toys in the Attic was like 75. And everyone said Rocks, which was apparently one of their best albums. I don't know, came out in 76. Were you following Aerosmith at the time? You know, uh, I was obsessed with rocks by Aerosmith. I think it's one of the greatest rock records ever made. Um, I think, it, I mean, it, it's got, it, it, back in the saddle, Jamie, Jamie's crying. Uh, sorry, Jamie's crying. Van Halen. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, wrong uh, band. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Jamie's got a gun. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, it, it had uh, it had some great hits on it. Uh Rats in the Cellar, uh, Look at a Promise, uh, if I recall, um, and of course, what was the second? Oh, uh, well, Back in the Saddle was one of my favorite. And Last Child, those are, that's a two-puncher, man. It's just incredible. And the way it goes into, uh, from song to song, there's some little interlude things that he does with the guitar that are just incredible. But I thought Rocks was one of the greatest records ever made. I've never stopped listening to it for a like, I It must have been five straight years. Uh, as the young fella prior, of course, prior to Glass Tiger. Yeah, I loved them. I thought they were pretty. It's just, it's interesting because a lot of rock fans point out that album, Rocks in 76, as being one of the best rock albums of all time. Incredible. And and yeah. and I don't know, like I didn't follow Aerosmith in the seventies. I was I was too young, and right. I didn't get into Aerosmith until, and we'll get into this until they became radio hits. You know, Permanent Vacation, Pump, Get a Grip, like all those albums that came into the eighties and nineties. Uh, yeah. But what was your first? I mean, besides Rocks, being a drummer, Joey Kramer. What were your thoughts of him as a drummer back in in the seventies? Let's say in those albums. Well, I, I thought he was amazing. Um, Again, he was not a, uh, you know, virtuoso, prolific kind of Neil Peart kind of guy. Um, he reminded me of, um, you know, in a way, Geezer Butler and all those guys. They, I mean, it, 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 they just sort of held down this amazing, amazing, uh, solid groove. And uh, although he, I mean, he really did have some great moves. So I thought, I thought he was fantastic, and I loved the drum sound as well. Uh, Rocks obviously was my first, uh, was one of my first loves for heavy rock, and uh, yeah, he was definitely a huge part of that. I thought he was fantastic, fantastic drummer. So obviously, I've heard of Toys in the Attic, which came out a year before Rocks. Yeah, I yeah. never heard Draw the Line, which came out in '77, or Night in the Ruts, which came out in '79. 
Uh, but, but let's jump in because this is the 80s podcast. The first album in the 80s came out August 1st, 82, and it was called Rock in a Hard Place. And it was an album that did not feature Joe Perry. He had left the band. Brad Whitford had left the band during the recording. It was produced by Jack Douglas. I really don't know any of the songs from the album. Do you recall anything from Rock in a Hard Place or was that something that just kind of, you know, did did not enter your listening vocabulary, if you will? Yeah, no, especially without uh, without uh, Perry, it, it wouldn't have resonated with me whatsoever. I, you know me, right? If there's a guy missing from the band, uh, you know, it's like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of starting to make my way out of the room. <laughs> You know, it's amazing that this band sold over 150 million albums, which is just crazy when you really put that into perspective, especially today. Another album in the 80s was Done With Mirrors. They said it was going to be a comeback album. came out in 1985, and it was produced uh, by Ted Templeman, which, of course, produced a lot of Van Halen albums and so many others. But uh, were you familiar with Done With Mirrors? Did you ever listen to any of the songs? And I don't even know if I could give you, I might be able to give you some of the songs. Uh, My Fist, Your Face, Shame On You, uh, Gypsy Boots, She's On Fire. Just That's just a, a few of them. But were you listening to, to Aerosmith then, though, like in 85? 85, I, uh, again, I probably checked out a lot. Shame On You, though, resonates with me. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to hear it. But honestly, yeah, I, I once... Um, uh, by the way, Draw the Line, I think it's a bit of an underrated record. It, it, and I, I guess that was just pre-80s, though. So if we're talking about the 80s, yeah, no, I never really I never really got much into that record. Um, uh, but the later stuff to come was obviously going to be huge. And, and I think those were the years. I remember hearing a story from Jim Valance, who, who uh, uh, produced uh, some stuff or wrote some stuff with Aerosmith, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. Val, Jim Valance in BC was our producer, but... I remember uh, him working with, uh, he said he was working with Steve Perry. It took about two weeks. Steve Perry was, you know, living at his house playing guitar and stuff with some songs. It took two weeks it took him to move his bangs a little bit to the right so he could look at them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, they, they couldn't watch Spinal Tap because it hit too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> he, he proposed that they watch it and we're like, we're not watching that, man. <laughs> Do you do you know that when they did the album in '85, done with mirrors, they actually recorded it uh, at Berkeley because they didn't trust the band to go to Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York to record anything, so they took them to the fucking school and just said, "This is where we're recording this album." And another interesting fact about the album, and this came from Brad Whitford, he said that Ted Templeman he wanted to capture basically that they were kind of like an out of control freight train. Right. So what he did is he removed the red light indicating that recording was happening. So the band never knew what was making it to tape or what wasn't. And that was the concept behind the album and Ted Templeman, you know, that was his idea. And they said it was going to be a comeback album. I don't know because I don't know too many songs on the album. Not that I, and you know a, a virtuoso when it comes to Aerosmith but um yeah, yeah I, I don't know there's nothing that resonates on this album I did go back and listen to some of the songs and to me it was just kind of there it was really though yeah. in 87 when permanent vacation came out you know 
Bob Rock, Bruce Fairburn were, were, were involved in the record. And this was the first time Aerosmith got outside writers, right? They had Desmond Child come in. Jim Valance wrote Magic Touch along with Steve Perry and Steven Tyler. Of course, Ragdoll, Jimmy Valance, and uh, w- was also a co-writer on that. And he actually wrote, like I think by looking at this, I don't know, three or four songs with the album. Of course, Dude Looks Like a Lady, uh, Desmond Child co-wrote that. Obviously, a huge radio hit, uh, Angel. He also uh, co-wrote yeah. that. So, so what were your thoughts of Permanent Vacation? Because to me personally, that is where I kind of really got into Aerosmith. They were played on Top Forty Radio. They had a Billboard. They had Billboard hits, uh, you know, at the time, and it just it resonated with me at the time in '87. Yeah. Well, I thought I thought I thought Permanent Vacation was was a, was a great record. I uh, really did. I I, I thought that. Um, there, so for me, there's a huge, a huge jump, a huge chasm, if you will, between between uh, Aerosmith, the Aerosmith of the '70s with Rocks, and those records. I felt that they got, a, as they went on, they got a little bit more formula. And if anything, that's my only complaint. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, dude looks like a lady and all that stuff. Uh, and I guess I, I guess that's my reference there with Jim Valance. Uh, and they, they, I think they lived in his house with him for a month or something like that. Um, but they, they had, I, I, I guess that that makes sense because that's what they were referring to as the as the spinal tap years, where it was like puppet show and Aerosmith for a while, and then all of a sudden it's it's uh, they hit big with a couple of big time hits. But Jimmy Valance is he is the master formula magician for writing songs. So I mean, it's it, it was a great choice to find balance. And I think it changed the game for them with, with permanent waves uh, or permanent vacation. Excuse me, I'm thinking of rush again as usual. <laughs> yes, <laughs> permanent, permanent vacation. Yeah, it's, it's a great record. And I figured you would like this record because they did record "I'm Down" by the Beatles uh, and put it on this album. So there, there's your wow. Beatles reference. Yeah, oddly enough, I didn't remember that. Yeah, there you go. But uh, permanent vacation, uh, and I bought the book that Desmond Child just put out. It's called um, Big Life, Living on a Prayer, and something Big Life. I don't know the exact title, but a great book that that he wrote, and I just picked it up about a week ago, talking about his career as a songwriter. Of course, he wrote a lot with Cher, Bon Jovi, and obviously Aerosmith, and some of the the big hits that they had. So that was my first, man, I, I really, like I bought the album. I didn't buy the other albums. I've heard the songs, but it didn't come till permanent vacation where I said, I'm going to go spend my money, you know, on a, on a CD and, and buy it. And then pump came out. And, and again, this was well produced a lot of production on pump in 1989, of course. And I couldn't believe that was their 10th album that came out September 12th, 1989 songs like loving an elevator, the other side, what it takes. Janie's got a yeah. gun. Uh, mm-hmm. They all went into the top 40. And it sold over seven million copies. Do you have any reference to, to Pump or anything that you remember about that album? Well, I remember one truck being on another truck on the cover. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> which sort of which sort of identified my, my years on the road. <laughs> it was, yeah. Uh, sorry, the singles you named again. Just throw those at me again, so I can hear them. Yeah. So, love in an elevator. Yeah, the other, yeah, the other side, What It Takes, which is more the ballad, and Janie's Got a Gun, they all were top 40 hits uh, on Billboard. And I don't know, again, 1989, I bought this CD. The, they went to Vancouver to record it at uh, Bruce Fairbairn's Little Mountain Studio. 
And it's funny because Bon Jovi did Slippery When Wet and New Jersey there as well, right? Yeah. And they thought right. that they, they, they kind of thought, well, that's why Aerosmith is doing this. And Steven Tyler said, we don't even listen to Bon Jovi. <laughs> so right, maybe, right, maybe, right, maybe, right. maybe that's not why they're there. But uh, and, yeah. and the concept of the album name too, Pump, was yeah. that the idea was that they're off drugs now and they're all pumped up about it. So just so you know, as reference. Oh, is that really, was that a quote from one of the guys? Uh, apparently, I don't know. Uh, Brad Whitford said that, yes. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. A great track. So Jamie's, yeah, Jamie's crying. Van Halen. Jamie's got a gun, and yeah. I thought I thought Jamie's got a gun was on rock. Now, why would I think that was on rock? It was on permanent or uh, it was on pump, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a great. That was that was definitely my favorite track. Um, that that uh, for that year, I remember that. For some reason, I thought it came earlier than than pump, but there you go. So anyway, yeah, great stuff. Really well produced as usual. And they got back to that. You see, there's always a funk present to me in their, in their guitar work with, with uh, Perry on guitar. There was always this kind of a, he always had great funky movement with the guitar. Other rock guys would just be hammering out chords, you know, on 16s or eighth notes or whatever it may be. But this guy had some real moves, you know, he always had some swing in his playing. And that's why I fell in love with Aerosmith um, with Walk This Way, which I think is still one of the greatest guitar solos ever played. And, uh, and certainly that did not uh, go by the wayside in the 80s. They kept up with that stuff. Great stuff. I, I always thought Perry carried this. this well, obviously, uh, you know, uh, lead singers take, the, take the, the, the front seat, but I thought Perry was the heart and soul of the band. So it's interesting because when Pump came out, you got to remember this is kind of the high watermark of like glam metal, right? Motley Crue, Poison, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, all of those bands. Um, And and a lot of Aerosmith fans, especially 70s Aerosmith fans, felt this to be more of a sellout. You know, this was not the Rocks album that you're referencing. Did you find the same thing, whether you believed it was a sellout or not? I mean, it was selling albums and it was on billboard and that's maybe why well that's why the record company wants it out there i don't know about the band i assume but so did you kind of feel the same way by the time you listened to them from 76 let's say to to 89 that they really sounded like a completely different band yes i did and 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 that's no disrespect to them because they were you know what's amazing about that it's amazing that you can you can uh, sort of quote unquote sell out but still be a fantastic writer and still create amazing songs, whether they be formula or not. The problem was, is that they still were formula. Uh, I was crying when I left you, you know, all that stuff, Angel and all that. Right. I, I thought that was, that, that was it for me. I, I, I completely checked out and thought, all right, that's all right. That, you know, it is what it is, but if you take that and put it side by side with an album like Rocks, man, it's just like, the difference is insane. And uh, whether they knew that or not at the time, I don't know. But I, I think it definitely made a difference in their careers. You could certainly hear a vast difference uh, between the uh, writing sensibility and where they were heading for. And I think it was because of the disaster that struck after Rocks um, for a few years there. Right. When they went for Spinal Tap years. I think it, I think it was such a devastating, as I understand it anyway, uh, after talking to Balance, it, it was devastating for those guys. They, they, I think that they, they only, you know, when that happens, the only chance you have to recover 
is to write something that everyone will love. And I think that they changed their game plan up to accommodate that, if you will. And, I, you know, I, 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 as, I, as a purist, I just wish they had gotten back to another Toys in the Attic or Rock. It would have been amazing, but it really never happened. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I listened to it. I thought, I thought it was great stuff. It's great stuff if you love formula songwriting, but for me, the Aerosmith was lost at that point. Yeah, a little bit for me. So it's interesting when you look at the chart history, though, they only had one number one, which was I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which went number one, um, I believe, like September 1998 something like that but but angel angel was went to number three on billboard janie's got a gun went to number four love on an elevator number five my point being that that all of the the hot hits came from those albums in the mid 80s if you will in early 90s uh but 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 the true rock fan loves the aerosmith of the 70s and and i get it and i think you can enjoy both of it uh both of them rather i i did see aerosmith uh, when it was COVID, well, 2020, obviously, Shane, and right before <laughs> right before COVID hit, literally a month before they shut everything down, I was in Las Vegas. I went to the residency at MGM there to see Aerosmith. My friend John Douglas was filling in on drums um, wow. for Joey Kramer, and now he's considered their touring drummer now because Joey's not okay. he, Joey's in the band, but he's not playing. Uh, but anyway, right. so, so I went to see John. Uh, play drums with them and they played obviously all the old songs a lot of them and they played obviously all the hits and i sat there as a fan of music and i just want yeah this is cool like i like the song toys in the attic i really do i like some of the older gritty greasy sounding 70s aerosmith and i love the radio hits because that's what i grew up with so i think you can marry both of them and they did a great job uh it's too bad that steven's going through a lot of vocal issues i know they've postponed the tour for a while i didn't check to see when it's coming back but um you know that's gotta for any artist at his age in his 70s um yeah that's a tough nut you know it is it is but you make a really good point but they they, uh it's hard to criticize a band that writes hit songs. I mean, look at my band. I mean, it's it's like you know, it, uh, it, w- w- my band. It's not the kind of music I would ever listen to. I mean, I I was a rock. I was a I was a heavy rock guy. Um, so I understand the idea of formula pop writing. Uh, I think that the jump was just a bit too much for me. But the fact that you can marry them both is is great. And honestly, uh, Jamie's got a gun. That kind of kept me in the ball game a bit. I thought when I heard that, I thought that's got some that's got some guts. That's a bit. I see. I'm as a, as Gene Simmons used Gene Simmons used to call it fearless songwriting. That's what I love the most. Right. And certainly, you know, Glass Tiger was the opposite of that. If you ask me, I mean, I, I love Glass Tiger playing the band and everything else, but fearless songwriting. That's for rock and roll guys, man. And 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 I love that aspect of rock and roll. I always have, always will. And uh, it seems to me that when you start to bring in even 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% formula, um, you're, you're, you know, you're gaining one thing, you're gaining popularity in a hurry, but you're losing the purists and you're losing the, the reason, you know, it's like why you got there, right. You know, walk this way would have never appeared on pump. Never. <laughs> no, no, not even close. Right. So, so it's amazing to me, but at the same time, I, you know, you can't discount, the songs that you grew up with, when, you're like me, Shane. When you grow up with those songs, they suddenly take 
you know, they take precedence over everything else because those are the ones that we all have the memories with. Those right. are the ones, we, right? We all we all had that first kiss, well, the high school, all that stuff. It was it was amazing times, and they resonate like crazy. So yeah, so for me, because I'm a little older than you are, and I do mean a little. <laughs> yeah, so it was the seventy stuff that I loved. Yeah, but I still, I still appreciate what they did. Yeah, but going to what you were saying, I remember my buddy Jim Bersotti had a truck, and this was like you know nineteen ninety ninety one, and we had Pump uh, on CD, and it was in the CD player. And Friday night we would go out and we'd mix, you know, vodka and orange juice, and we'd be cranking up, you know the album because it had so many hits that you recognize from radio and you're loving an elevator and what it takes and all those great songs. And so my memories of sitting by the Chippewa canal river, whatever the hell you want to fucking call it and having drinks and listening to Aerosmith was not 1976, you know, it was 1990, you know? So, so that's where my memories are attached. And that's why those songs mean more to me than some of the others. And again, I like the seventies Aerosmith. I just didn't grow up with it. But when I heard it live, I was like fucking killer. Great. Sounds great. You know, my my two favorite Aerosmith songs ever are back in the saddle straight into last child, uh, right off a rock. Those two in a row are the big bang punch for me for Aerosmith. Um, I'll never forget the impact that that had on me. When when I heard that had on me, when it, when it, when I first heard that, uh, it was like listening to Van Halen one, uh, you know, with uh, with the horns blasting into the first song. It was it was like that for me hearing Back in the Saddle. And then when you listen, I don't know if you listen to Back in the Saddle, man. They've got like a ho- the the sound of horse hooves and all that stuff in the background. Uh, it's like an old western movie. You can actually see it explode in front of you. It's a <laughs> brilliant track, brilliant track. But yeah, I mean, I get it. They, they, they were still great all the way through their careers, and they're always the most iconic, one of the most iconic rock bands in the world. So, so we, we, we have to make a deal that I assume they're going to come back and play next year when Steven's better. And if they're playing around here, damn it, we're going to go see them. Because to be honest with you, oh, the, yeah. the second or third show that they canceled it was in September was in Toronto. Oh, no. So the show didn't happen. So I assume that you know, eventually it will. And we got to go and we got to go hang out with the band and we got to, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll ask them what they think about the seventies. We are. I I just ordered my tickets online. All right, Michael, thank you. It's uh, always a pleasure. I don't know where Bobby rock is. He's busy tonight, but we'll catch up with him again in a couple of weeks, but uh, that sounds great. My brother. Thanks for having me as always, pal. You're amazing. Thanks. I learned it by watching you. Would you talk about words? This is Darkade.